Is it ever a good idea for somebody to say, you know, I'm going to nominate this person. They have to be this gender. They have to be this race. If he could have gotten away with not making that promise, I think everybody would be better off, including whoever he picks, because it just it delegitimizes that person before they even enter the seat. All the time, I feel like there's these women in journalism events and awards for women specifically. And like, I, I appreciate that in a sense, but at the same time, I want to be recognized for me. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, where are we going to start today? We've got a big show today. We're going to be talking about a lot of interesting things coming up. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is stepping down, leaving Biden to choose his replacement. So far, there's a short list and a campaign promise from Biden to nominate a black woman. We discussed the implications of all of that. After a record-setting year, the stock market is flirting with a correction. Ravi takes us through what to watch. And this is not financial advice. Should we all panic sale? Libel mm-hmm. laws are under the microscope because of an unlikely duo. Sarah Palin and Cardi B will take you through the significance of those cases. And the old adage, everything that's old is new again. We explore the emerging trend that old music is more popular on streaming platforms than newer music. But first things first, Joe Rogan had psychologist and author Jordan Peterson on his podcast for a four hour very long conversation this week. They touched on topics ranging from race to climate change. And while you may not have thought of Jordan Peterson as an expert in those areas, because, well, he's not, he sure had a lot to say about them. On climate in particular, Peterson has provoked backlash for questioning the validity of climate change. Let's check out this clip. Climate change one is a weird one. So that well, one that's because there's no such thing as climate, right? Climate and everything are the same word. And I, that's what bothers me about the climate change types. It's like, this is something that bothers me about it technically. It's like, well, climate is about everything. So, okay, but your models aren't based on everything. Your models are based on Warming. a set number of variables. Yeah. So that means you've reduced the variables, which are everything, to that set. Well, how did you decide which set of variables to include in the equation if it's about everything? And that's not just a criticism. That's like, if it's about everything, your models aren't right. Because mm. your models do not and cannot model everything. What do you mean by everything when you say... Well, models? when but that's, what, that's what people who talk about the climate apocalypse claim in some sense. We have to change everything. Mm. It's like, everything, eh? Okay, what... And the same with the word environment. That word doesn't mean... It, it means so much that it actually doesn't mean anything. I'm confused. Uh, <laughs> what... What, 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 I, know, I know both you, Ravi and Ricky, you both watched this entire interview. I got through a little bit of it. Um, what, what is the takeaway here? What does he mean by climate is everything? Yeah, I think this reminds me a lot of people when I was running schools. There, there were these people who were proponents of this idea of the whole child approach to education. And they would say, you know, we can't be measuring and testing reading or writing or math because it's the whole child and you can't isolate any one variable. And what I would say to them is what I would say to Peterson, which is like, if you go to the doctor and your doctor says that you have high LDL uh, or, you know, your BMI is increasing dramatically, that doesn't tell you everything about your life and and your health, but it certainly should be alarming, Mm -hmm. right? And that's how I think about climate change. The fact that we're dramatically increasing CO2 into the atmosphere and the earth is warming and that if it continues to warm at the rate that that it is, we're in for some very reliably catastrophic scenarios 
is important. And I think this is just like sophistry to say, all right, well, just because you can't you can't include every possible variable doesn't mean that the the things that you that like the variables that you are paying attention to uh, aren't really important. Absolutely. What do we, I mean? What do we think about here when he says the models for climate change aren't accurate because they don't include enough variables? Well, he's wrong about that. So uh, Zeke Hausfather, which is quite a name from the University of Cal Berkeley, looked at seventeen of the most sophisticated and most used models uh, for climate that were uh, developed between 1970 and 2007 and found that 10, depending on your count, 10 to 14 of those models were accurate, meaning and predicting the future, meaning most of them were accurate in predicting the future. But the whole point is we know the characteristics of CO2. We know the kind of uh, impact it has on a warming climate. We know that we're increasing it. And so even if there are other things that could happen, like, you know, are there things that could happen to mitigate climate change that we can't predict today? Sure. Just like I could step out tomorrow and get hit by a car. That doesn't mean I shouldn't take my LDL serious uh, today. So uh, this is what I'm saying is like, he's, he's basically saying we can't take seriously anything unless we can evaluate all things all the time. And then I would wonder like, then are we just like relativists? Like we just walk around and care about nothing at this point? Yeah, this, as a Peterson fan, this interview kind of made me cringe a little bit because now like I was ready to come in and defend him. But like, I think that's something that we do here well is like full disclosure, next segments about the stock market and I don't really know what's going on. And like, I'm gonna <laughs> admit that. And I feel like there's this, this feeling that everybody in the media needs to know everything about every single issue. Mm -hmm. And this conversation just happened because Rogan brought up that he was reading a book about climate change and then it just went off into this long rant from from Peterson yeah, about- He couldn't help himself, like, yeah. I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that I think that Peterson's really compelling on, like, like issues of personality, of personal responsibility, um, his biblical series, he's, I think he's an agnostic and I've found as somebody who's kind of identifies as a deist, like he's made me way more Christian than going to church has somehow, really? which is he's got a really interesting, like I'm not preaching to you kind of vantage point. And there's a lot of really compelling stuff in my opinion that Peterson does. This is not it. And I wish that people could just be like, I don't really know that much about this thing. Right. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's a great trait because that's why we don't have faith in media figures. And, you know, I don't want to hear about what Peterson has to say about climate or the carnivore diet. Like, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm okay. Well, I agree with you. I like, there's certain parts of Peterson's, uh, his whole, you know, what made him famous in the first place and his, his book that this kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, kind of preaching to young men in particular. And I think there's a, a lot of good there. And it's amazing because I think you immediately see in this interview that he's high in his own supply. He gets in there and he's like, he cannot let the pitch go by of Rogan saying he was reading a book on climate change and has to make the whole beginning of the interview about that. And I think, you know, Rogan's in the news right now because there's, you know, a lot of scrutiny of, of how, whether he's promoting misinformation or disinformation on his show. I would say that he acquits himself quite well in this, not just because I'm somebody who yeah. believes in climate change, but because I'm not sure. And Rogan says, he, he basically says he's not sure where he comes out yet, but I think he did a really good job in this interview of asking simple questions of Peterson mm -hmm. repeatedly to justify certain claims he was making. And at times they would look certain things up that Peterson yeah. was describing. And I think it, in, in many ways it, it shows either an evolution of Rogan, I'm not as much of a connoisseur of Rogan, but like either an evolution in his approach or, you know, maybe that he's he's better at, you know, fact checking than people give him credit for. But there was another part of this interview that I want to highlight, which is Peterson goes on to say that liberals and people who believe in climate change want to 
you know, one, our main solution is to uh, lower economic development, especially for the less well-off. And Peterson says that the fastest way to make the planet sustainably green and ecologically viable is to make poor people as rich as possible, as fast as we possibly can. So two main claims here, and, and I looked at both of these. I think there's definitely some truth to some people who are climate change, you know, who are learned about climate change, who want to do things like tax carbon and make energy uh, more expensive. But I don't think that that's the majority of people. And, and in part, I want to read, you know, Bill Gates, probably the biggest investor in the climate change world, and certainly on the philanthropic side. This is from his book how to avoid a climate disaster. He goes, I kept thinking about what I'd witnessed in my travels. India, for example, has a population of 1.4 billion people, many of them among the poorest in the world. And I didn't think it was fair for anyone to tell Indians that their children couldn't have lights to study by or that thousands of Indians should die in heat waves because installing air conditioners is bad for the environment. The only solution I could imagine was to make clean energy so cheap that every country would choose it over fossil fuels. So mm. I think Gates is... is I think, reflective of most people who care about this issue, which is to say, we don't want to make energy more expensive for Indians. We want to actually invest in R&D uh, and deployment of technology to make it cheaper uh, for them so that the trade-off makes sense. Uh, so that's where I'm coming from on this. Is like I think he presents a false choice in this interview. So I think what I'm gathering from this is that Jordan Peterson is not really an expert on the climate. Yeah, uh, Ricky, as somebody who is familiar with a lot of Jordan Peterson's work. I'm someone who's not that familiar with his work. Yeah. What about him has this appeal that the fact that we're even talking about this interview, this was supposed mm -hmm. to be a big deal. So what is it about that appeal that even allows him to be able to have a four hour interview with Joe Rogan? Yeah, um, I think that he is definitely a thought leader in a way that, um, you know, I hear all the time that young men are empowered by him. I found him empowering. I never heard any message of his that I felt was particularly directed towards men. Mm -hmm. But I think that he brings this message, especially to younger people that are like my generation's very nihilistic. And mm -hmm. that's just obvious. It's in, in our music and our culture and how that we think about the world and having somebody who kind of teaches you to take personal personal initiative to kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps to make a difference in your life and find meaning through just kind of in like kind of more traditional ways how it used to be while everyone else is kind of nihilistic i mean that's just i think that's kind of the common thread of it and even just his his older work i think on youtube that's yeah. that's yeah. really where where a lot of his inspiring stuff is maybe not everyone will find it that way but um i think there's definitely some stuff that's worth checking out of his and i just i think he he teaches a a way to find meaning in a way that a lot of people aren't able to today yeah i would encourage people who i get the question often from left-leaning people who are like explain to me this jordan peterson phenomenon and i think reading his book i think is like his book and some of those early youtube videos because mm -hmm. i think uh correct me if i'm wrong he, he came to prominence because he was doing uh videos online challenging yeah. canada's hate speech laws and there's mm -hmm. actually a really interesting documentary about his rise mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and it shows basically how he was challenging these laws in in canada about i think things like gender pronouns and how you refer to people and all that and he kind of expanded it out mm -hmm. and i think even if you're not with him on the underlying issue um the, the kinds of battles he was having in Canada explain a lot about why I think he appeals more to the right and the left. And I think it's in a, a shame in, in, in many ways because his book is not necessarily a right-wing book. Like mm -hmm. you read mm -hmm. that book and it it really yeah. is like a self-help book. Yeah, uh, really and is. I think that at the, even if I disagree with maybe half of the stuff in there, the, the other half that, that I think is valuable is really unique and, and I think speaks to why the book is so popular. 
Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And I think his Bill C-16 stuff from Canada sometimes ends up giving him more of a right-wing reputation just because it does deal with gender. But I think it's important to remember that his argument about it was about compelled speech and not whether or not he would respect someone's pronouns just by choice. Mm -hmm. And so I think that because it fell on that fault line of a really delicate social issue, he automatically kind of became a figurehead of the right. Whereas I think that argument is really just a free speech argument in the end. But then again, he does have other right-wing values as well. Yeah, he, you know, as much, it makes it hard for me to advocate for him with left-leaning audiences where he does stuff in this interview, which is repeatedly come back to, this is the problem of the left, this is the problem of the left. And as you know, our whole operation here is about trying to critique the left, the right, the center, anybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, I find him routinely doing things that we try to avoid here, which is create the most uncharitable version of the other side Mm -hmm. and knock it down, which is what he did here on climate change. Like he he did no work whatsoever to say, well, actually there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, are advocating for solutions to climate change that don't make the poor worse off. And so I only want to critique a small part of them. He could have easily said that, but he didn't. Yeah, Yeah. I think part of that also comes there's a pattern of people from academia who become thought leaders in like the kind of right wing where they are in these academic circles where the most political extreme stuff can thrive right. because yeah. it's not really real world applications. And so even coming from a university a few months ago, like there's some crazy stuff. And if I spend enough time there, I might yeah. be kind of caricaturing the left in my mind right. in the way that I yeah. think that sometimes he tends to. So I feel like there's an interesting kind of common thread of the people who do that often yeah. come from academia. Right, right. Yeah. I think it's just one of those examples of kind of like staying in your league when it comes to expressing your thoughts about certain subjects. I think if Peterson had stayed into the realm of what he knows more about, this probably would have been a more well, I think we should add that to the rules for life then. Maybe yeah. that'll be, what is it, 12 rules for life? So we'll make that the 13th. 13th rules. Yeah. Stay in your league, guys. All right, so the Supreme Court's oldest liberal justice, Stephen Breyer, is stepping down at the age of 83. His retirement opens the way for President Biden to nominate a liberal justice while Democrats still control the Senate. Now, Biden's nominee won't change the political makeup of the court, which will still have six conservative justices and three liberals, but it will change the bench's makeup in one significant way because Biden during the campaign promised. I'll appoint the first black woman to the court. So let's just start with that. Is it ever a good idea to if whether it's, you know, Supreme Court or a vice president pick, is it ever a good idea for somebody to say, you know, I'm going to nominate this person. They have to be this gender. They have to be this race. Is that ever a good way to start the conversation? I think this is the challenge of this country, really, because there have been 115 justices who've served on the Supreme Court. All but seven have been white men. So uh, that's obviously alarming and it's not accidental. At the same time, I think announcing ahead of time that this is your litmus test undermines whoever you're going to pick, because then it makes it seem like that was the qualification, not how smart you are, or how great of a jurist you are. And so I know this seems like I'm kind of hedging here. I understand why people were demanding of Biden such a promise, because there's frustration out there with the fact that there hasn't been great representation. But at the same time, if he could have gotten away with not making that promise, I think everybody would be better off, including whoever he picks, because it just it delegitimizes that person before they even enter the seat. 100%. I think, um, you know, as a woman all the time, I feel like there's these women in journalism events and awards for women specifically. And like, I I appreciate that in a sense, but at the same time, I want to be recognized for me. And I think that's, um, I agree with you that 
that there's a necessity to have people that fit those demographics ultimately coming to the court. And even if he did pick that behind the scenes, I, I wouldn't really have an issue with it. But I think the optics of announcing that and promising it, you always end up undermining people when when you pick them or you say you're going to pick them for an immutable characteristic. Then that ends up kind of holding the weight and gi giving fuel to the people that oppose them, in my opinion. Yeah. What I will say here is that there is a precedent for this. Um, Ronald Reagan in 1980, when he was running for president, he vowed that he was going to put a woman on the Supreme Court. And he did. Yeah. Uh, George H.W. Bush, um, the Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, died when George W. Bush was president and he felt compelled to replace a black justice with another black justice. So that's how we got stuck with Clarence Thomas. <laughs> um, and so it was ideologically very different from Marshall, but fit the graph. And, and that's actually a good point. The fact that George W. Bush put another black man on the court, but he was so ideologically different from the one he replaced that it seems to me that ideology would be the more important characteristic that a president would look for rather than just blanket, blanketly saying, oh, it has to be a person that fits this demographic. Right. And I think this this relates to the problem Kamala Harris is having, because obviously there's a lot of speculation that I think wrong speculation. I think it's stupid that that Biden would nominate her, that she would she wouldn't serve, I think, even if she was nominated. But well, I think, that wouldn't make any sense because if it's a 50 50 tie in the Senate, then who would break the tie? You no, no, you would replace president. her. But I think like the but I do think that her challenges in many ways come back to the promise Biden made there, which is mm -hmm. I think people look at her and yeah. don't see somebody who is picked for her qualifications, but because of her identity, mm -hmm. whether it's right or wrong. We've we've spoken on this issue before. I'm, I'm not going to I don't feel like we need to go back into it. Mm -hmm. But I do think like the American public looks at her and says, this is not somebody who was chosen for any other reason than her identity, that she was the best person of this narrow group of people that we could have picked. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a challenge that she faces. I think this is going to be a challenge that the next Supreme Court justice face. Now, in the end, there are Supreme Court justices who, who sit for life. So I think really, in the end, it's not as consequential because their main audience is the other eight justices. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say it's anywhere near the the size of the issue that, that Harris faces. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I think the politics of this are interesting because you've got two names that are consistently coming up. One is uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's mm -hmm. on the D.C. Circuit. I think that's the most likely name to make it through here because mm -hmm. she made it uh, out of confirmation just recently to get that seat in the D.C. Circuit. Yeah. yeah. And she got three Republican votes. She got Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. So there's some- wow, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, and so there's some sense that she already has been tested through the Senate. Now, obviously, this is a higher seat, so yeah. there could be a whole sure. different debate. And I wouldn't count on anybody in the U.S. Senate to be consistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not these days. And like they, you could you could see them making an argument, like different tests for the Supreme yeah. Court. But I think she's going to be the most likely. I think she would make it through. But get, correct me if I'm wrong. It, you used to have to have 60 votes to put somebody on Supreme yeah. Court. Yeah, they changed. McConnell changed the filibuster. McConnell yeah. changed it. So it's kind of a backfire onto McConnell here because he could have had more control. The Republicans could have had more control over this pick. He'll come out ahead, trust me, on this one. He's got, <laughs> he, <laughs> he always figures out a way, doesn't yeah. he? And you know, we were doing some research about like the, the qualifications to be on the Supreme Court, and there really are none. I mean, you got to be confirmed yeah. by the Senate, and there's no age requirements either, because there's an age requirement on the presidency, there's an age requirement to go in the Senate or the House. There's no age requirements on the Supreme Court. So I say, let's get a teenager on the Supreme Court. <laughs> like, let's just somebody who could be on there for like 80 years. Like, well, just, you're seeing this in, the, in a lot of the Trump confirmations. Like, I'm not blaming this on any one party, but I think each administration gets a little bit more brazen. And he was he was nominating people that are super young onto the mm -hmm. circuits yeah, and yeah. Yeah, onto yeah. the district courts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these people will be with us forever. For, for so. a long time. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
Absolutely. Well, we'll see who he ends up nominating. Um, <laughs> it's been a year since Robinhood, Reddit, and GameStop came together to shake up the stock market. This time last year, retail investors were pouring money into meme stocks like AMC, sending share prices well past any rational level. To the moon, as the Reddit crowd likes to say. Fast forward to now and the U.S. markets are in a correction territory with the Fed widely expected to raise interest rates. Stocks have surged pretty much nonstop since the first months of the pandemic, driving a lot of valuations to absurdly high levels. But now a lot of people are looking around and asking, is the party over? Ravi, um, take me take me through this. Like, like yeah. what should I be doing on Robinhood right now? Yeah. Well, okay. This is not investment advice to, <laughs> to any of you or to any of our listeners. But I think we should start with Jeremy Grantham, who is uh, the founder of GMO, uh, which is a firm out of Boston. And Grantham, I want to start with Grantham because he has been really credible on the question of bubbles. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's a proponent of what this theory of like reversion to the mean, meaning that there are certain trends in American society uh, economically and the market always reverts back to the mean. And mm -hmm. he's been tested. So this guy uh, avoided the Japan disaster in 89. He avoided the dot-com bubble. Mm -hmm. He seriously mitigated his downside in the housing bubble. So he's been right a lot. Now he's been talking for years about the fact that uh, we're headed for an iceberg in our current climate. And he did an interview a couple of days ago to describe this. Let's look at a couple of clips from that interview. All right. Super bubbles can really wipe you out like 1929 did. And uh, that's where we are now. So we're talking about a decline of, certainly from the peak of almost 50%. Almost 50%. And of course it declined very quickly 50% in 1929. It declined 50% in three years in 2000. And the housing market, which was another great American super bubble, went all the way back to trend uh, in three years. So basically what he's saying, he's calling this a super bubble. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he says there were only three other super bubbles in the past 100 years, 1929, 2000, Japan, and 89. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the first time ever he claims that we have simultaneous bubbles across all asset classes. I'm going to walk you through a little bit of this. So housing. Uh, houses in the U.S. are at the highest multiple of family income ever, including leading up to the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, this is not just a U.S. problem. There's, it's actually more pronounced in countries around the world. So this could be a global problem. Canada, Australia, U.K., China all have actually worse problems here. Wow. Equities and stocks. So there's this thing called the Schiller price earnings ratio, essentially saying, like, how is your stock trading relative to how much revenue you're bringing in, how much earnings you're bringing in over like a 10-year average. And those ratios are typically somewhere between 17 and 20. And in December, they touched 39. So basically double what they have been historically. And if you look into the details, there's so many absurd examples in the equities market, like Rivian is a good example, this car company, yeah. um, mm -hmm. was trading um, at a higher rate, uh, at, had a higher market valuation than Ford, uh, even though Rivian had not sold a single car at that point, and wow. Ford was selling something like 1.8 million cars. Uh, and so there's all this crazy, absurd behavior. And then there's the bond market, which we saw the period of the highest price bonds ever, which means the lowest yields, which means that it is more um, like you getting anything out of your savings is harder than ever, which means that everybody's forced into the market to play this game. Mm -hmm. And actually putting money into savings, you lose money in real terms. So everybody's being forced out into this, uh, and which means drives up all the prices of the equities. So it's kind of a circular problem. And then you have commodities where you have 
oil and important metals all trending above the average. The UN uh, Global Index for Food Prices is at an all-time high or around an all-time high. So you put those four categories together, and Grantham is saying, this is a perfect storm, and this is worse than anything we've ever seen in our lifetime. We've never seen all these forces come together. And when, when we think about the dot-com bubble, it was mainly an equities problem. When we think about the, the housing bubble, it was mainly a housing issue, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it was Japan, where there are two separate things happening at once, where there was the real estate market and equities at the same time, but you didn't see all this other stuff, like yeah. the commodities and the bonds, et cetera. Yeah. And he says, um, and this is where I'll kick it to you guys to think about what this means. He says, we face the greatest potential markdown of wealth in US history. If valuations across all these asset classes return even to two thirds of the way back to historical norms, total wealth losses will be on the order of $35 trillion. I feel like I'm on CNBC right now. Um, <laughs> so what's driving this, this over-evaluation of all these stocks? Yeah, I, I think like for him, there are multiple explanations. And I think one thing that I would caution our listeners to do is avoid the one simple explanation, mm -hmm. right? And that's why I like Grantham is like, he is bringing together a lot of different explanations to say that when you have this super bubble and you have multiple asset classes all having similar problems, but there, there isn't just one explanation for it, right? Uh, I think a lot of attention is being paid to the Fed and they deserve a lot of the blame. And this has been going on for a long time. Greenspan juiced the uh, equities market leading up to the dot-com bubble, even though he said it was a irrational exuberance. He played a huge part in that um, and then sowed the seeds for the housing bubble by basically going after the head of the CFTC at the time who wanted to uh, police the derivatives market, which was the ticking time bomb that got us into the housing bubble. Bernanke, when he was at the Fed, uh, famously underplayed the housing bubble, basically said there wasn't a housing bubble and said that in our history of our country, we've never seen housing prices go down. Well, surprise, they did go down down right after that. <laughs> Quite a bit. Um, and you've been seeing similar problems where the Fed, and some of these aren't like, and this is where, like, I'm not saying that that these are just evil people. Mm -hmm. I just think they have a bad theory about how to manage the economy. So, you know, over the past, you know, whether it's Powell or even like, uh, you know, yelling at the Treasury and when she was at the Fed, they have this theory that we need to pump as much money into the economy as possible. And they have not, a, they have no sense about the unintended consequences of what that means. And basically what's happened is interest rates have, have stayed low. Uh, basically, they're at record lows, which everybody thinks of as a good thing because people could buy houses yeah. and all that. Yeah. Kind of stuff, but that also means that if you're the, the the kind of person who's conservative, and you just want to put money in a savings account, you're losing money over time, which means that everything gets more expensive because it makes no sense to keep money in savings. And then at the same time, through this this policy of quantitative easing, they're pumping money into the private sector. Money is cheap for corporations, which drives these valuations, right? Like one of the reasons why a lot of these companies don't go out of business or their, the, the price of the stock isn't reflective of their actual unit economics is because the Fed is making it so easy to just pull money out. Uh, and so what you're going to see now as rates go up, as quantitative easing uh, gets pulled back, which the Fed has signaled they're likely to be heading towards, yeah. uh, then you're going to see prices of equities go down. You're going to see potentially inflation go down and all this. And once you see the drop in all these assets, you're going to see uh, wealth disintegrate in this country. And that is going to be frightening. Well, I've already kind of surrendered my credibility on this person <laughs> in the beginning of the podcast. But yeah, I mean, I have to say from 
during the pandemic, during lockdown, I was living with my mom in LA. She was a former financial advisor. And so she trades stocks now kind of full time. And I remember sitting through the pandemic and thinking like, okay, like everyone's losing their jobs, like small businesses are crippled and what the heck is happening in the stock market? Like she'd be like, oh, I had a great day today. And I'm like, <laughs> none of this makes sense. And so in, just intuitive, to, intuitively to, to me the whole time, like it just has felt completely off with what our culture and what like the real economic ground level experiences for everyday Americans has just not been reflected in the stock market, which to me just just felt wrong the yeah. entire time. And I think in part that's probably because of the way that the interest rates have gone down and how, you know, rich people have more money to just kind of play with in the stock market. And yeah, I'm I'm a little concerned. Well he makes a, sure. he makes a scary prediction, which essentially he says that the speculative stocks mm -hmm. fall first. So this is when you see things like Peloton, which is not a profitable company. Mm -hmm. And interestingly he says it starts with the speculative stocks and then it moves to the blue chip stocks. And so that the question then becomes, and this is where we truly become CNBC is, <laughs> where do you put your money? Yeah. Uh, is a big yeah. question. And I think he here's my sense. And Should I'll I talk about gold. I'll, I'll tell you about what I, what I, how I'm thinking about this. <laughs> um, not, not, this is not advice, uh, <laughs> is, uh, there are two different theories. Uh, of of where you should go from here. There's one theory which is all right. The S and P 500 every uh, every 11 months goes down about 10 percent on average, right? Mm -hmm, Historically, mm -hmm. so maybe you know there are the Pelotons and these other companies that are losing 50 plus percent of their valuations, but there most other stocks are somewhere in that 10 percent range. You know, and un, who knows by the end of this, stocks could be up or down. It's such a volatile market yeah. right now. So there's a theory that says not much different is happening. And at that point, uh, just invest in those blue chip stocks because this is not going to reach them. So look at the companies that actually have earnings, have good union economics, like an Apple or something, yeah. right? Like a company. And, you know, Apple has, you know, $190 billion of cash on its books. So that's a company that's probably going to weather the storm. Yeah. Yeah. That's one group of people that advocate for that. I'm sympathetic to that. And I don't know enough to say whether that's wrong or not. Mm -hmm. Grantham goes further and says, get out of US equities altogether. He has a few theories. You could watch this interview mm -hmm. uh, about where you can go from here. Mm -hmm. I think he's basically advising for people to keep an eye on the bond market and your savings mm -hmm. accounts and see if the high yield savings accounts come back to the point where you can move money into something that's gonna predictively give you a few percentage points, either match or outpace inflation. And that would be like a conservative approach to this. I don't really know the answer to that, but I would not be investing in speculative stocks right now. You could get lucky, you could catch Peloton or Zoom on the, on the, on the bounce, mm -hmm. but if you can't afford to lose that money, mm -hmm. then you shouldn't be playing in the market in that way. I blame TikTok. To be mm. totally honest with you, because of GameStop, yeah, the GameStop <laughs> stuff. I felt like that had a lot to do with like over evaluating uh, companies and things like that. And it kind of goes back to, I mean, this is all sounding real nineteen twenty nine ish to me. Yeah, <laughs> and it goes back to, I think it's a, a quote that's attributed to Joseph P. Kennedy, JFK's father, who said something to the effect of, "When the shoe shine boys are giving you stock tips, it's time to take your money out of the market." Well, that's my thing right now. I I personally feel like you know when the TikTok boys and the Redditors are giving you stock tips, it's time to take your money out of the market. <laughs> well, let me let me get to one piece on that before we move on, which is uh, I was looking into this and I, and I thought to myself, hey, is, is the retail investing driving part of this? But interestingly, 56% of American adults own stock right wow, now, which 56. is about the same that it's been for the past 20 years. So really? even though that some of these new tools like Robinhood mm -hmm. uh, have changed maybe the way people interact with the market, uh, 
the average American is not any more exposed, it seems, mm -hmm. to the market than they were before. And I think in, in large part, like these new tools are democratizing in many ways. Like it's yeah. good for me yeah. that Robinhood doesn't charge fees. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. what they do with your data and all that is a whole separate question <laughs> that we should be challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, you know, there's all this brouhaha over the GameStop stuff. And I think there was like, a you know, the elites that were getting challenged because they were saying, all right, uh, don't, you know, you're able to invest whichever way you want and you could invest in sophisticated options or whatever, but the minute the average person does that, you get mad at them. And then they're, but then the elites were saying, look, I'm just saying, I don't want you to lose your life savings mm -hmm. in, in a stock that has no, uh, you know, historic earnings. And it, like a lot of these are, are industries that are, that are on the downward track. Exactly. Like yeah. a movie theater chain, you know, like these are things that, that there's not a strong story as to why it should be, you know, a hundred times its value from one week to the next. And I think in the end, you're a libertarian. I, I imagine this is your case. It's like, let people make their mistakes. This is how people learn. Like if people go in there and lose money, uh, like we can't, like we can't be so paternalistic as to say, I'm going to yeah. tie your hands for you. People need to go in, lose some money, learn from it, and then maybe make wiser investment decisions into the future. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think also with the um, with the GameStop thing, a lot of the tactics that were used are kind of similar to what hedge funds have done historically. And there was a lot of freaking out as soon as the little guy did it and coordinated. Right. And, you know, I, I realize that kind of shakes things up. But at the same time, you know, I, I think as many people who are being informed in going into the market, the better, because especially yeah. with lockdown and stuff, like if, if you're getting stimulus checks that you want to put into something that you're speculating, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't see, I don't see any issue with it as long as you're doing it responsibly and realizing that there is a risk and not just going off of Reddit entirely. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I would go even further to say, you have a right to do it irresponsibly, you yeah. know, just don't oh, yeah. come crying so, to anybody, but yeah, like, totally. yeah. you know, if you want to, and this is the like true of Doge, like there's some things that became jokes that <sighs> people made a lot of money, people lost a lot mm -hmm. of money. Yeah. And in the end, people need to assume that risk. This is my action park libertarianism yeah. coming out. <laughs> yeah, well, I got to call my broker. Um, <laughs> all right, so Cardi B and Sarah Palin, two rappers you may not have associated with each other. And I wouldn't recommend watching the former Alaska governor rap Baby Got Back on Fox's show, The Masked Singer. You're gonna have to describe that to our podcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, we just watched um, the former governor of Alaska as well as the former vice presidential nominee from 2008, Sarah Palin, rap. Baby got back, had some bars there. Although polar opposites, both of these public figures have been in the courts recently fighting libel laws. This past week, rapper Cardi B was awarded $4 million after suing popular YouTube gossip blogger Tasha Kay for defamation invasion of privacy and infliction of emotional distress. Tasha Kay admitted to spreading lies about Cardi B saying things like she was a prostitute and used cocaine and had herpes, some crazy stuff with beer bottles. Whereas Cardi successfully won her suit, Palin has been fighting the New York Times in court for four and a half years. The media giant admitted one of its editorials inaccurately linked the former vice presidential candidate to a 2011 shooting in Tucson, Arizona, which severely injured Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. As public figures, 
Palin will have to prove, as Cardi successfully did in her case, that the Times acted with genuine malice. But will Palin be able to prove it? And are libel laws set out of the New York Times versus Sullivan too protective to the media? Uh, this is a really crazy case because it's really hard to win a libel case. Mm. And somehow uh, Cardi B did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think like... I think for people listening at home, it's confusing because there are two different standards. If you're a famous person or if you're a regular person, it's very different. If you're mm -hmm. just a regular person, you have to just show that somebody was negligent. Mm -hmm. Like, meaning like, like they didn't, whether they intended to or not, if they said something false about you that they could have reasonably avoided saying mm -hmm. um, with some effort, mm -hmm. uh, then they could be held liable to that. Whereas if you're a famous person, there's a standard from New York Times Sullivan that says you have to show actual malice. And the test there is essentially, was there some kind of intent or like serious subjective doubt uh, about the facts that you had, but you still mm -hmm. moved ahead anyway. And that's why the New York Times finds itself where it is, is because if in this case of, of Sarah Palin, these cases almost never make it to court. Yeah. And even though a lot of legal experts think she's gonna fail uh, ultimately in the, in the verdict, the reason why the New York Times is even here in the first place is because there's a record of uh, a New York Times reporter drafting a story. There was this map at issue with gun sites over it that Palin put out and Arizona is one of the states and, and eventually Gabby Giffords got shot. And there was this question of like, did Palin incite that or not? But uh, the original draft of this article that there was no uh, d you know evidence of a direct link between that map and uh, Giffords getting shot uh, and also uh, there were just mischaracterizations of, of the way that the map looked and all that. And then the editor came in and basically edited to say the exact opposite. And wow. that is the paper trail that I think gets us to where we are today. So whether or not the New York Times loses, uh, they don't look great because it seems like they really, really wanted to believe this about Palin and printed it. Behind the scenes, I think in a lot of newsrooms, editors always want to ham it up and make it more sensational. And this is a really good example of how much that can go awry, especially putting a politician on the line for a shooting that they had nothing to do with. Um, so I do respect that Palin was definitely defamed by this, but I think Cardi had it so lobbed up to her in court with um, with the defendant going on the stand and admitting that she knew that they were false and making videos from a couple years key. ago saying like, oh, I know this isn't true, but quote, I want the money. Oh, wow. Like that's that's pretty bad. And I also don't want to know what happened with those beer bottles, supposedly. Yeah, they need to know that. <laughs> they need to know that. Yeah. But that's the key. What you're saying is the key. Like these cases yeah. are so hard to win with a famous person that you have to basically show like they have to say it out loud. Is yeah. that's how hard these cases yeah, definitely. are. And what is like parody plays a big part in this too, because I know like with a lot of celebrities, if you use like parody law, you can just get away with saying anything like the National Enquirer and things like that. Yeah, and parody and opinion, right? So yeah. you could say, I believe that uh, Sarah Palin incited violence. Uh, and you know, as long as you mm -hmm. couch it in those terms, you're pretty much protected. Yeah. But I think that when you state it as a fact, that's yeah. where you get yourself into trouble. And so, you know, a, a lot of people are pushing for reforms of these laws because the U.S. is is actually unique in having laws like this. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gorsuch and Thomas is a lot of movement from the right to actually water down some of these standards, which is, I think, the other significance of the Palin case is that she's mm -hmm. already signaled that she would uh, appeal if mm -hmm. she made it, uh, if, if they ruled against her, which they likely will. Mm -hmm. And it's possible this could make its way back up to the Supreme Court where they reevaluate New York Times versus Sullivan. I doubt they'll have the votes yet. We yeah. don't know what Coney Barrett's gonna say, mm -hmm. but it's hard to imagine that they have the rest of the court they can get to five on this yeah. uh, to yeah. change the standard. Yeah. Uh, but I think it'll be significant if it gets up there because it might make it closer and closer to a change in this law.
I don't love the concept of weakening the the protections that people have with this. I think that especially as someone who comes from a newsroom and all the all the people that are whistleblowers and you want to you want to publish something on on rumor and expressly say that like I think that there could be damage done to journalism and people coming forward and actually exposing something or or nerves that are coming out of the newsroom that don't need to be there whereas I think having the the ex- I mean, I think it's totally appropriate that if a newsroom purposefully is saying something false, that's that's a different thing from from reporting something. And I think that there's there's definitely could be a chilling effect of rolling that back. But at the same time, even with the Cardi B situation, I think now like a lot of YouTubers and bloggers are going to be more careful when they know that something's not true. And that's not necessarily a bad thing either. So I think I think like promoting caution is great, but stifling the conversation is where I think some of these laws could end up going if they end up being amended. And so I hope that we are as conservative as possible in tweaking them. Yeah, absolutely. Did Cardi B really need four million extra dollars from a YouTuber? I'm not I'm not really sure. I mean, I definitely think that the YouTuber was very malicious in what she did and it was not right at all but it reminds me a little bit about what Peter Peter Thiel did when he backed Hulk Hogan right mm-hmm. against I think it was Gawker oh right? yeah, yeah 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 he didn't need mm-hmm. the money it was more about the statement it was the mm-hmm. rushback mm-hmm. pitch yeah. to say you know he, he I think he wanted to create a chilling effect uh for anybody in the future who came after him and there was a little bit of vengeance in it too yeah so I think <laughs> yeah. whether yeah. she needs that money or not I think yeah. this was this is a cold move. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty cold. She's, she's used to that. But um, yeah, now on to our last story. A trend in the music industry. Old music is outstreaming new music like never before. According to an article in The Atlantic, old songs now represent 70% of the U.S. music market. Even worse, the new music market is actually shrinking. The 200 most popular new tracks now regularly account for less than 5% of total streams. That rate was twice as high just three years ago. So um, this is really interesting. Now, it is important to make the distinction that when this article talks about new music, they're talking about music that's released in the last 18 months. So literally anything outside of that window is considered old. So this could be people just listening to songs from like three years ago, four years ago. But a lot of data suggests that a lot of young people and just people in general are listening to music, you know, from decades ago. So what do we think about this trend? Well, I'm going to be the old man here and say that music today sucks. Uh, that's, that's what's driving I'll second this. that. Yeah. So there you I don't, go. I wow. couldn't even name yeah. any. I have no idea who's popular right now. I don't know what's happening. And I'm there supposed to be a youngin. I have no yeah. clue. Uh, I'm there not sure either. Olivia yeah. Rodrigo. Yeah. That's all know. I know. Um, yeah. But but yeah. So I, I wanted to bring this up because I wanted to ask this question because I wanted to apply this to us. Is Or do we fit this characteristic? What was the last three songs you listened to? For me? Uh, you know, this is embarrassing uh, I I just went down a Mariah Carey uh, <laughs> thing as well. I was just I did not expect that. Yeah, I was just I went back through her. I don't know where she came up, but I was just went through her back catalog. Uh, I think it was like because of all the weird research I do for the show. Mm-hmm. I have like a, my YouTube algorithm is all screwed sounds up. Sounds like an just, excuse to me. Yeah, yeah, for some reason yeah, it, yeah, it dished up a Mariah Carey tour of her house uh and so i was like oh mariah carey i haven't thought okay. about her in a while and so then i went down the the rabbit hole of mariah carey <laughs> so we're talking like early the mariah odb carey, i think it was the odb i started with the odb i think it was fantasy yeah remix. fantasy remix you yeah. know because i'm from staten island so i like that <laughs> but it's like uh and then it's, it's kind of a gateway drug so i do the odb one i think there's one with jay-z and then i'm and then i'm like full on in, in like ballad mode at a certain point like hero and all these other songs <laughs> 
So yeah, that's my yeah. Oh, wow. I fit this trend though. That was a long. That time was ago. that's that's from the yeah. '90s. That's from that's older music. What what about you, Ricky? I think I fit the trend as well, but like in a more modern old music sense. I've I think during the pandemic for me, especially with everything being kind of so out of control, I've enjoyed listening to music from my childhood. Like I don't know if it's a nostalgia thing for other people, but I think there's something kind of comforting about it. So I've got some like early 2000s bops that I'm embarrassingly still listening to. Yeah, that's to how right I feel now. about Phil Collins because I'm like 100 years older than you. I, when I <laughs> yeah, listen I to Phil Collins, of- I think of my mom because in our in Chevy Lumina van just taking me around. <laughs> <laughs> what about um, you? Oh, um, last three songs I listened to was probably My Life from Billy Joel. And then I listened to This Charming Man by The Smiths. And then I listened to Throw Some D's by Rich Boy featuring Polo to Don. So that was the last three I, songs. You know, it's funny. I, when I was uh, over the winter break, I, I re-downloaded Billy Joel's Greatest Hits. Oh, yeah. Absolutely incredible. Like how many. No, one, no one's really making music like that anymore. Maybe that's what's driving this. Like there's just like maybe maybe music does kind of suck these days. Yeah. Except country. I think it's some nostalgia. Some good old nostalgia, I think. Yeah. Did you just say country is really good right now? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, who are you listening to in the country world? I mean, Zach Brown. You know, I, I saw their concert over the summer. They had a new album that came out that was pretty good. Uh, I think that country, to me, it has, like, over the past, like, 10 to 20 years, has, like, gotten better, whereas almost every other kind of music has gotten worse. Really? So you think about, it, like, Jason Isbell, Zach Brown Band, um, you know, Kenny Chesney even. Like, there's, uh, like, I think, like, country is is getting less twangy and poppy and more sort of folky. Hmm. Um, so yeah. if you don't like country, maybe it's, it's time to get into it. Yeah, that's your just Nashville self coming out. Well, yeah, I used to, when, before I moved to Nashville, I used to say I like all music except for country music. And then really? when I left Nashville, country is up there for me. It's really wow. Hot. Yeah. wow, that's awesome. Well, interesting stuff. Well, we thank you all for watching. We appreciate it. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us and listen to us on Spotify. Give us a rating on there if you can. We thank you for watching. We'll see you next time.